The Bible today is being read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30, and it will be found on page 969. Matthew chapter 5, commencing at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, this is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come back and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are we doing? Good? It's a real shame that my sermon's not called Today's the Day. I feel like my father stitched us up a little bit. We're going to be doing something completely different. But today is still the day, and God does still speak. So he will still be speaking today, so still live like it's today. Because it is today. Um, but before, before I begin, um, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are here, that you are with us. Father, we thank you that you are a God that speaks to us. You do not leave us in darkness and silence. You speak. Your words are truth and your way is life and it is the way to you. Father, I just pray that you would change our hearts, you would mold us and grow us to be more like your son, and that we would follow you every day that it is called today. Amen. I want to start by um, telling you about a test. Um, It was a test that was conducted, I think, about the 1960s by a professor called uh, Professor Milgram. Um, or Milgram, I'm not sure how you say it, but um, he was a professor and he was looking to study um, the way in which people respond uh, to authority. And he was looking to study people's obedience to authority, how far people would go to obey authority. 
So what he did is he got uh, a series of test subjects, and he would bring in one subject, and there would be an actor who would pretend to be another subject as well, and then there would be a scientist. Then the actor and the subject would pull names out of a hat to show what role they would play in the, the test, and the, the participant always got the role of the teacher, and the actor always got the role of the learner. The actor would then go into another room where he would sit in what looked like an electric chair. They would put fake electric impulses onto his head. It was all fake, but the participant didn't know this. The participant would then go into another room, but he couldn't see the actor in the chair, but they could speak, they could hear each other. And he would sit there with the scientist. Then it was the role of the subject, the, the teacher, to teach the person in the chair different pairs of words. Right, so you teach maybe like cat and dog. So when I say dog, you say cat sort of thing. So you would teach them these word pairs, and then he had to quiz them on them. And for every question the person in the chair, the actor in the chair got wrong, the scientist would tell the participant to press a button that would send a little electric shock to the person in the other room, which is a great way to do when people get questions wrong. We do that at youth group all the time. It's fun. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. We don't. Um, but what happens was every time he got a question wrong, they would increase the voltage. Uh, they would increase it and it would go up and up from a little shock to something that was quite uncomfortable, to painful, to severe pain, to torture, to finally death. 450 volts was the final shock. And the, the participant knew that if, if he had to press the button that time, the person in the chair is dead. He doesn't know it's an actor. He doesn't know it's fake. He hears the actor scream and cry out. He hears the sound of the fake shock. And Milgram was trying to work out how many people would go all the way. How many people would press that button the final time, even though they knew it led to a fatality, if it led to death. And so before he conducted the experiment, he goes, first of all, I'll just ask my colleagues. I'll ask my students. So he asked his colleagues and his students. He explained the experiment to them probably better than I have, and then said, how many people do you reckon would push the button on the final time? And through all their responses, they go somewhere between zero and three percent. That was what they thought. So out of a hundred people, they thought anywhere between zero and three people would go all the way. They thought everyone else would protest and say no and refuse to do it. So Milgram then conducted the experiment over many years in different countries with thousands of different participants, and the results came back. And the results weren't 3%. The results were 66%. 66% of people were willing to obey authority to the point of death. More than that, 100% of people were willing to administer a shock of 300 volts. No one backed out before that. 300 volts, that, that's torture to shock someone to that level. No one backed out, 100%. 100% of people would torture for authority, 66% murder. And I feel like I would love to ask the people before they went in the question that they're about to answer of would you obey authority to the point of killing someone? And I reckon all of them, perhaps, would say no, never. I wouldn't do that. I would never kill someone because I was told to. I would never torture someone. I'd never treat someone that inhumanely. I would never do it. But then they were put in the actual situation, and 66% of them did. And Milgram, after he finished his study, he, he wrote this report, and in it he says this line. He says, 
ordinary people, simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their works become patently clear, and they are still asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. What's, what's Milgram really getting at here? What am I trying to get up here? I, I want to get at this idea. Whoa. <laughs> Good timing. I've got an idea. Um, I want to get at this idea that we would never, we don't know what we would never do. We actually don't know what we're fully capable of doing given the circumstances and the situations. We would say, no, I would never, I would never kill, I would, I would never hurt, I would never do that. But until we're there, we don't know. We don't know what we would never do. There's a great song by a, a band I like called The Flaming Lips, and it's called the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song, and there's this line where it goes, with all your power, what would you do? And you cannot know yourself or what you would really do with all your power. And he, he then asked a series of questions like, if you could rob the whole world at the flick of a switch, would you do it? If you could make everybody poor so you could be rich, would you do it? And the question, the answer he comes up to is, you don't know. Until you're there, you don't know. And I, I think about my life and our lives, and I think about the context that we've been raised in, and I wonder if we were just raised slightly differently. If we were born in a different time, in a different family, a different part of the world, in a different culture, if the circumstances surrounding our lives were just ever so slightly sweet, tweaked, who would we be and what would we do? And we can look out and speculate, but in the end, the answer we come back to is, we don't know. And I think if, 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 we, if we look out at people in the world who commit actions that we would go, I would never do that. Or we look back at the atrocities of history and we go, if I were there, I wouldn't do what they did. I would stand in the face of this regime. I wouldn't submit to that authority. I would say, no, I'd put my foot down. I wouldn't do it. I would not be like them. I think if we say that, which I know I do and I think we do, we actually fail to understand the darkness of the human heart. You see, all those people that have committed actions that we say we would never do, do you know that we share something profoundly intrinsic to who we are with them? We might have different biology and different physiology and, and culture. We might have been raised differently. But more than that, we share something deep. We share a human nature. Which means in our human nature is the capacity for all the atrocities we've seen and said we would never be a part of. That's our human nature. That's our human heart. Jeremiah says this about the heart. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You can't understand your own heart. We don't know what we're capable of. We don't know what we would never do. But I think for a lot of the time, we don't really believe this, this truth about our heart. I don't think we believe we're that darkened or fallen. And I don't think we ever will as long as we continue to only ever measure darkness and sin in terms of really tangible actions. 
You take this passage we've got here, and Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees um, who love to make themselves look righteous by keeping the law. Um, and he goes, really, you think God's minimum standard is not murdering? That, that if you do anything, as long as it's not murdering, that's okay. Or anything up to adultery is okay, but adultery, that's a no-go. Is that, our minimum sta- is that God's minimum standard for morality? But as long as we make those tangible outworkings the only way in which we describe darkness and sin, we'll never fully understand the true darkness of our hearts. And that's one of the amazing things about this passage. The way Jesus gets us to totally rethink, totally remold our vision and understanding of darkness and sin. Because Jesus, he he totally understands our hearts. And he sees that the sin is not found just in the action, but it's found deeper. It's found in the human heart. It's found in each one of us. And if we don't do anything about it, that sin, it spreads like yeast and it grows and develops and transforms. And it might have started as something really small, but now it's a catastrophe. When you, um, when you garden, right, and you've got a weed, and you want to get rid of the weed, if you just cut the leaves off like I used to do as a kid, um, the weed grows back. If you want to get rid of weeds in your garden, you've got to pull them up by the root. Jesus is saying the standard is not not murdering. That's not enough. It's deeper than that. The problem is deeper in our hearts. So, who is it that murders? I think the people that Jesus is talking to go, well, well, murder is murder. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not just murderers who murder. It's anyone who has the capacity for anger in their heart is capable of murder. It's not adulterous people that commit adultery. It's anyone who can harbor lust in their heart can commit adultery. The problem is way deeper. It's made more intrinsic to our heart and our nature. You don't know what you would never do. You don't know the depth of the darkness in our own hearts. See, Jesus is he's really serious about this. I think sometimes we go, it's just, just, it's just a little bit of anger. Like, it's, is that really a problem? It's just, it's just a look. It's just a bit of lust. It's not really a problem, right? It, it's, it's okay. Jesus is just being a bit pedantic here. No, Jesus is really serious about these things because he understands the depth of sin and he understands the trajectory of sin. That no sin just remains as it is. Sin grows and develops and it starts small and can grow bigger. You know, someone could just do something to you one time, you're like, oh, just that little thing, it's really annoying. And then that annoyance becomes a frustration. And that frustration becomes an anger. And that anger, where does that lead? There's a trajectory to sin. If we don't cut it off at the bottom, we don't know where it can go. And Jesus, he's he's come down to earth and he has announced that the kingdom of heaven is here. Earlier on in the Sermon of the Mount, he goes, the kingdom of heaven is like like a mustard seed. And he goes on to describe the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus has come and ushered in a new kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of heaven. And he has called each of us who follow him and accept him into that kingdom. We are now part of his kingdom. And he is building his kingdom in our hearts and through us and through our lives. 
when you're building a kingdom, when you're building anything, you need to make sure the things you're using to build it are good and sturdy and trustworthy and strong. So Jesus is saying there's no place for these, we might call them like little sins, because of where they lead. Like if you're building a city or a building or anything and you, and you put stones in place and you're building up the wall, you don't get a stone that's crumbling and falling apart and you go, oh, this will do. Put it in. To do that, you sacrifice the entire integrity of the structure by this one weak stone. Jesus is building a kingdom and if there's no place for murder and if there's no place for adultery, well, there's no place for anger and resentment and lust because that's where it all begins. Get rid of sin at its root. And I think for us as well, in, in some ways we're all building, maybe not a king, maybe kingdom's not the best word, but we're, we're building something as well. You know, each of us has, has a story up until now. We have our narrative of our life. And we are building what that story looks like. We are writing the end of that story. Some things we can't control, but some things we can. We're building our story and our narrative. We're building the world, the world in which we're going to live in. We're building our own little sort of private kingdom. I think a question that comes from this passage is, what sort of kingdom do you want to be a part of? What sort of kingdom do you want to build? Do you want to build a kingdom that's got its base in, in, in anger and lust? Or do you want to build a different sort of kingdom? To use the language of the passage here, with your life and how you're living, are you sowing the seeds of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven, or of, or of hell? What are the seeds you are sowing in your life? You see, Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom, a good kingdom, and you are part of that. This Sermon on the Mount is not how you get into the kingdom. It's not meet all these requirements and we'll accept you. It's you have already been accepted. This is how you now live in the kingdom. It's like the kingdom manifesto. Once you're in, here's your guidelines. Not how do you get in. It's really hard if it's, that's, that's the way in. Impossible if that's the way in. It's a code of conduct for people who are already in the kingdom. And I think if we, if we don't get rid of these sort of little sins in their, in their early, in their infancy, in a little way, the kingdom we build is no different to the kingdom of this world. And if we're willing to build a kingdom that makes allowances for anger and greed and lust, what sort of kingdom does that end up with? Well, it's the kingdom of the world we live in. It's end up being a kingdom of genocide, a kingdom of seg segregation, of war. It's a kingdom where there is bitterness and frustration. It's a kingdom where there is slavery. It's a kingdom where there is the objectification of women and men and children and all people and the world becomes this dehumanized mess where everyone and everything is dehumanized in a self-serving cycle of how can I get the best out of this? How can I use this person or that person or this thing or that thing to make myself look better? That's not a truly human kingdom, much less so a heavenly kingdom. That's just the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to renew and restore with the heavenly kingdom. See, our hearts are so darkened 
that we don't fully know what we're capable of. We don't know what we would never do. And we're all building a life. We're all building a kingdom. What sort of kingdom do you want your life to be built upon? Where is it heading? What is the trajectory of that? I think something that's really interesting in this passage is that, you know, obviously Jesus says that, you know, anger is not a good thing, right? Anyone who's angry with your brother or sister will be subject to judgment. It's obviously not a good thing. But he also understands that we're humans who do get angry. And we're not always loving. We're not always kind. So what does he do? He tells us what to do when we are angry. So look at, look at verse 23. It says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift to the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Then come back afterwards and give your gift. That's how serious Jesus takes our relationships with one another. It's like back in those days, they're going to the temple to give their gift to God, to come down and worship him and say about how much they love God. And he, when they get there, Jesus is going, if you're coming there to worship God, but you can't love the person in front of you, work out how you can love that person in front of you before you come to me. How can, you, how can we say we love the Father, yet we hate his children? Or we hold resentment to the people that he loves? You know, in the, um, in the 8 a.m. service that we read the greatest commandment out before the, the sermon, and I was thinking how fitting that is. In the, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, he goes to love God and love your neighbor, and he links the two of them. He's asked for one commandment, he gives two, because they're linked. He goes, how can we come here to love the Father and not love each other? Are we too busy loving God that we can't love each other? He goes, No reconcile to each other. It's important. It's imperative. Part of how we love God is to love one another. If there is anger, settle it. And then he goes on into the, the paragraph about adultery and he goes, and if there is lust, flee from it. He uses this sort of classic Jesus hyperbole, right? If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's a hyperbole. He's not saying literally do that. And the reason why is because you could do that and you would slowly run out of body parts. You would just keep hacking away at your body and there would be nothing left. That's not what he wants from you. He's making a point. And his point is be drastic. Be severe. Change what you're doing. Do something different. Remove yourself from certain areas of life if it's going to mean that you're not going to live a life of lust. Take active measures. Because the problem is not just the action, it's something that begins deeper in our hearts. I want to leave us um, with three, three final things for us to, to do, or to think about, I guess. Um, and the first is um, something I feel like I've learned over my short 24 years of life. Um, <laughs> And that is that, at our core, I think, in some ways, humans are fundamentally incompatible with one another. And um, <laughs> the married people laugh. <laughs> we can say that because I'm single, so you know, I can say that. Um, we're fundamentally incompatible with one another. And what I mean by that is we can always find a reason to be frustrated at someone. 
We can always find something about someone that is annoying. We can always nitpick. We can always make ourselves feel justified in a way in which we see someone. But they did this. They're really annoying. We can always find that response. And I think the, the problem with this is that what we start to do is we start to write a list. And that list might start with really legitimate reasons. But once you start writing a list, you don't stop. And you keep adding to it bit by bit. And it gets to the point where you look down at the bottom of your list and it's just absurd. It started with something maybe legitimate and it ends up with, I hate the way they breathe. I hate the way they cut vegetables. That, that, that's worthy to go on the list. That's worthy for me to not love them fully because it's so frustrating. When, when me and my sister were young, she used to put her feet on like the bridge of my chair at dinner and I had like a visceral reaction every time she did it, right? I was like, that, that is worthy for me to be angry at. That's not true. Of course it's not. But we have these lists. And I think with every item that we have on that list, for any individual, we need to know something. And that's that for every item you have for someone, they have one for you too. And the more you know someone, the probably the more you can add to that list, but the more they can add to your list. And here's the beautiful part of that. We don't know each other fully, but someone did, or someone does. Jesus knew us fully, and he knows us fully. If we want to talk about lists, his is the longest for you. He could go on and on and on, and he would be way more justified in why he's angry at you, why he's disappointed in you, why you're not worthy of his love and his forgiveness and his grace. It would go on and on and on and on. When he came to earth, did he go up to people and go, here's my list. Here's why I'm not going to love you. <laughs> here's why you're not in my kingdom. Look at it. It's long and beautiful. No, no. He didn't come with a list. He came with open arms and love. And anyone who came to him, he goes, I don't have a list written against you. There is no list that can separate you from my love. That list is taken away by the cross. It is totally wiped new and restored. And Jesus goes, I'm not going to love you because of who you are, because I know who you are. And trust me, it's not why I love you. I love you in spite of who you are. And I love you as if you were perfect. I love you as if there was no list against you, no record of wrongs. That's the love that he has for us. He loves us each individually as if we were perfect. But he also says, as I have loved you, so you are to love each other. And how much of the time do we hold these arbitrary, meaningless lists against people while accepting the love of Jesus who threw our list away? To love as Jesus loved is to love each other without a list as a barrier between us. It's to love them how Jesus loves them. It's to love them as if they were perfect. So first thing, lists, throw them out. <laughs> really simple to say. Um, the second thing, if you look in the passage about murder, you'll notice twice Jesus talks about the way in which we speak, the way we use our words, right? So he says, anyone who says raka, that means nothing to us, but it's an Aramaic sort of swear word or curse word. It's a really rude thing to say to someone. Um, he also, anyone who says you fool, in danger of judgment, in danger of the fire of hell. What he's getting at here is that our words are really powerful. And our words can be an amazing instrument for good, but also an instrument for destruction. 
I mean, we, we can bring down empires and kingdoms with our words. We can ruin people's lives with our words. Just by the words we say, we can get two people who have never met to hate each other before they've met. Just by what we say. We can destroy lives with our words, but we can also use our words for immense good and positivity. And if we use our words in truth and love as we are called to, we can encourage and uplift. We can make someone's day better. We can make their lives better. We can show them love and truth in what we say. Our words are really powerful. How are we using our words? What kingdom are we building with our words? But also, I think... What we say, it's also just as powerful what we don't say as well. You know, I feel like someone could wrong me, right? And I could pat myself on the back and going, I didn't curse them. I didn't say, you idiot. But maybe I don't extend forgiveness and love. What is my lack of words saying then? It's saying, what you've done is cut you off from my love. And I'm not going to forgive you. What we don't say is powerful. Let's reach out with truth and love. Forgiveness for when we are hurt and encouragement with our words. And finally, the final, final part, if you go down to the passage about adultery in verse 27, right? you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. If I tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is all about our eyes. And more than that, it's, it's about the way in which we see people. Because I think there is an immense power in how we see people. If I see someone as being inferior to me, I'm going to treat them as if they're inferior to me. And then I'll begin to believe that they genuinely are inferior to me. And that's a dangerous cycle. What's more dangerous than that is that then they will begin to believe what I believe about them. They'll begin to believe that they are inferior. So when people treat them as less than who they are, they'll accept it because this is who I am. This is what people say about me. This is, this is who I am. If we are looking at people and going, they're insignificant, they're not important, they're not as good, they're not as worthy, they're just here for my sexual gratification, they're just here for this or that or pleasure or some sort of function, if that's how we see people, that will become how we treat them. That will become what we believe about them and that will become what they will believe about themselves. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of God's love for humanity, is it? You read, you read Genesis 1, and he says, I made you in my image, male and female. I made you equally. Galatians says anyone by faith is the right to be a child of God. There's not a distinction there between who is and isn't a, a, a child once you're in the kingdom. There's not better children and worse children. There are just children loved by God through faith. And I think when we start to see people with this lens of, of function or pleasure or inferiority, what we start to do is we stand in the way of God and his message of truth about who they are. So when God wants to tell them, you're equal, me seeing people in certain ways says, ah, yeah, but you're not as equal. And when God's like, I love you, I'm like, ah, oh, you're not worthy though. God's like, I've forgiven you. And I stand in a way and go, no, you are still guilty. And I'm going to hold it against you. When we see people in that way, we deny God's truth about them. We put lies instead of truth. Division instead of unity. Hate instead of love. And as you hear that, you begin to sort of 
realize who we sound like if we're doing that. It's exactly what the devil does. He manipulates God's truth into a lie and uses it to accuse, to use it to spread division and hate. And when we see people, not as God's children, equally, fearfully, and wonderfully made, that's what we do. We, we preach a lie, which they might believe. So to end up, this passage is written to us not as a means of getting into the kingdom. It's written to us because we're already in the kingdom. We are children of God. We are his sons and daughters living in his kingdom. And his kingdom is not built on weak foundations, corruptible human foundations. It has no place for lust and anger, frustration and bitterness. No, it is a place of love, joy and peace. It is a holy and amazing kingdom. And so because all sin has a trajectory, it has a place where it's going, and you don't know, and I don't know what we are fully capable of or the depths of our wickedness, the question is, what sort of kingdom are we going to be building? One where we allow sin to fester and grow, one where we cut it off at the root. And Jesus' response is, get rid of it. Do something about it. Throw out your lists you have for people. Forgive them. Ask for forgiveness yourself, motivated by the love God has for you. Use your words to uplift and encourage, restore rather than break down. And see people the way Jesus sees them, loved children. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge this challenge that you have given us. And we acknowledge before you the depths of our own heart. Father, we don't know what we're capable of. We don't know what we would do if we were in a situation. But Father, you do. And even that couldn't separate us from you. Father, I thank you that you have chosen to love each and every one of us, that you have showed us love in abundance and abundance, grace upon grace upon grace. And Father, I thank you that you are using us, these broken instruments, these, these jars of clay, to build something beautiful, incorruptible, never failing, never spoiling. Father, please help us. Help us as people of your kingdom to live as people of your kingdom. Father, please, please teach us where we fall short. And Father, please help us, give us the strength every day to keep going. Amen.